we have been reflecting on the life of David. And I've been planning for this Sunday because, did you know, the life of David actually intertwines with the Christmas story. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. What I'm going to do, we're just going to kind of read through some pieces of, of 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, and, and then we're just going to have some time and, and reflect on it together. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 is what's called the Davidic covenant. So everybody say Davidic, and then say covenant. You never sounded so smart. Uh, nobody knows what that means, but it's, if you want to sound smart in the theological world, say Davidic covenant a bunch of times and you'll win every single argument. <laughs> so the Davidic covenant, what does that mean? Simply means a covenant that God made with David. As we've been reflecting on David's life, we saw that God called David when he was probably 15 or 16 years old as a young shepherd boy hanging out by himself, taking care of the sheep. God calls him Samuel, the prophet, comes out and anoints David to be the future king of Israel, but it doesn't happen quickly at all. In fact, there's a lot of ups and downs in David's journey to the top of his leadership. And then there's the time where Saul, if you want to go and binge listen to all the previous David sermons, you can do it on our podcast, Search of Liberty Christian Church. You can listen so you can get all caught up. But at this point, Saul had died. Jonathan, Saul's son, who was David's BFF, had died. And now David was the king of the southern kingdom for about seven and a half years. And then uh, Ishbosheth, who was Saul's, also Saul's son, was the king of the northern kingdom. But now David is finally king over all of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And now he's going to experience a time of prosperity. God promised David that David would be king of all of Israel. And this is what we reflected on last week, that it's about God's timing, not our timing. Can I get an amen from the church? And now in chapter 7, God is making his covenant with David. And as I reflected this past week, the question I asked myself a lot was, why? Out of all the people to choose to be king of Israel, God chose David. Like, well, there's, a, there's a lot of other, it seems like to us, a lot of other better candidates that God could have chosen. And then I took another step back and I thought, well, not just David. Why in the world did God choose Israel to be his chosen people? They weren't that great. They were a very small kingdom. They were no powerhouse. I mean, if you think about it, the Egyptians were really the military superpower of the day for generations in the ancient world. And God chose Israel. Why? And then you take a step back and you think, and even in your life, I think a lot of us deal with guilt and a lot of us deal with shame. And we ask, God, why would you choose me? I don't deserve this. Why? That's what I want to reflect on today. God chose Israel. God chose David. And if you're a follower of Jesus, God chose you because of his unfailing love for you. That's it. There is never a way that you can outsin the grace of God and the love of God. And as God, as we'll reflect, made a covenant with David, God made a covenant with you through Jesus in his death and his resurrection. 
that we don't have to fear anything because of God's love for you and me, that we know when we leave this life, which is 100% death rate, we will be in the presence of God with no more pain and no more suffering. And that's what this life is all about, focusing on the eternal, our uh, godly kingdom, not earthly kingdom. And I'll tell you what, if I hear the words grim and dark one more time in my life, I'm going to lose it. I don't know about you. Can we just have a little bit of hope, please? We're going to make it through this. God is still good. Jesus still died for our sins. You're going to make it through this winter, okay? And if you're a follower of Jesus and you don't, you'll be in the presence of God, and that's not too shabby either. Can I get an amen from the church? That's good stuff, and that's the hope that we believe in. So here we go, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says in verse 1, we're just going to kind of jump around here. You can follow along if you have your Bible. You can scroll through on uh, the Bible app. When King David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Okay, let's put ourselves in David's shoes right now. Two decades he was on the run, basically. Or he was either, uh, you know, not a leader, and then he was in fear for his life, and then he's on the run for about a decade. And now he's finally king of Israel over all the kingdom. What do you think, if you put yourself in his position, what would you do? Live life, man. Build an awesome kingdom, man. It's going to be great. This is what David's thinking of. So it says, David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Because you follow God, you follow Jesus, he will give you rest. This is what Jesus says. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not anxiety. He won't give you shame. He won't give you worry. He will give you rest. So the king summoned Nathan the prophet. He said, David says, look, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, a wonderful place, but the ark of God is still out there in a tent. So even in this time of David's life, when now he's the king of all of Israel, he thinks in his mind, what can I do to glorify God? Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the Lord said to Nathan, and this is the Davidic covenant. God says, go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I've never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. So remember when God saved the Israelites, uh, he would travel in, in the tent, right? The tabernacle. He says, I've always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling, yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people, Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. He says, I took you from tending sheep in the pasture, humble David, and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I've gone with you wherever you have gone. I've destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. This is what God says to David. He says, I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in, secure, in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past. Starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies Again, you see this rest piece. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. 
For when you die, you are buried with your ancestors. I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. God keeps his promises. This is in reference to his son, Solomon, who would continue on the legacy of David and who would build the temple for God. He's the one who will build a house and a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. What does this mean? This is a sign of Jesus, isn't it? Because David passes, Solomon passes, and in fact, Solomon splits the kingdom that David brought together. It's split back into the northern and the southern, and really, David's kingdom eventually falls. So God says that David's kingdom is going to last forever. Who is in the line of David? Jesus. Jesus is in the line of David. The kingdom that God is referring to, that it says he will secure his royal throne forever, is Jesus. That now for you and for me, you believe in Jesus and his death and his resurrection, you can inherit the kingdom of God by nothing that you have done to deserve it, but everything that he has done for you. Verse 14, he says, I will be my fa- his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. God did not make a covenant with Saul, but he did make a covenant with David. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me, and for all time, your throne will be secure forever. Again, this speaks of Jesus. So this is the Davidic covenant. The prophet Nathan goes back and brings this to David. It says, Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord has said in this vision. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he prayed. I love this. He says this, who am I? Everybody say, who am I? Who am I, David says, that I deserve something like this? Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, Sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty, do you deal with everyone this way, O Sovereign Lord? What can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, Sovereign Lord. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. How great you are, O Sovereign Lord. There is none like you. He says, you've made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. God is in the redemption business. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations of gods that stood in the way. You made Israel your very own people forever and ever. He says, may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. For you are God, O sovereign Lord. Your words are truth, and you have promised these good things to your servant. And now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you have spoken, and when you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. So as I was reading through this this past week, thinking of the covenant that God made with David, I came across a quote, and it completely revolutionized my life. And this is what it said this past week, so I was just reflecting. I just came across it, and it just it stuck out, and it spoke to me. 
Speaking of the Davidic covenant, it says, God's covenant with David is unconditional. Everybody say unconditional. God's covenant with David is unconditional. Ready? It does not depend on human obedience or faithfulness, but only on God's unchanging love. When God makes a promise, he is serious. He keeps it. So even if you reflect on David's life, and in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about his mighty fall. He had a humble beginning. He, he rises to power. He's the king of all of Israel. All power is his. He does great things for God, but also he falls tremendously. He fails tremendously. Yet the covenant that God made with David remained true, even though David disobeyed God. David sinned. I mean, it's, it's messy. It's, it's brutal. He has an affair. He murders somebody, espionage, all this stuff. And there's great consequences for his sins. And there are great consequences for us when we sin. But God held up his end of the deal because when God makes a covenant with someone, it does not depend on our faithfulness or our even obedience, but only on his unfailing love. We can get so caught up in this thing that's called legalism. And in reflecting about legalism, it's basically saying that you can work your way to God. You can obey your way to God. And the crazy thing about that is it automatically sets you up for failure because it's impossible. You cannot work your way to God. You cannot obey your way. You cannot be faithful to God. There's only one thing that you can do, and that's believe in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. God meets you where you are, and at that point in your life, it doesn't depend on your own faithfulness or obedience, but only on the mercy and the grace of God. And if you think, and if I think, that we can out the love and the grace of God, how dare you or me? Question the power of the Almighty God who knit you in your mother's womb, who created this universe, who saw it from the beginning, and it puts a lot of anxiety and a lot of shame on us. If you think that you can work your way to God, you're going to feel immense shame in your life, and it will eat you up from the inside and destroy you because it's impossible you can't obey your way to God. Look what David says in Psalms chapter 13, verse 5. He says, but I trust in your, everybody say, unfailing love. Simply means it never fails. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. Romans 5, verse 8, Paul says in the New Testament, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So Jesus made us right with God. This is the beauty. This is the covenant that Jesus makes with you and with me, that if you believe in him, I guess that's the one condition of his unconditional love. If you believe in him, 
you will have eternal life. And if you believe in him, in his death, in his resurrection, when you and I stand before God on judgment day, you will be seen, as scripture says, whiter than snow. Is it anything that you have done? No. But what he has done for you. You can't work your way to God. You can't obey your way to the grace and the love of God. His covenant is, is his covenant. Again, it does not depend on human obedience or faithfulness, but only on God's unchanging love. In the book of Job, chapter 10, verse 12, it says this, You gave me life and showed me your unfailing love. My life was preserved by your care. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Psalm 117, verses uh, 1 and 2 says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people on earth, for his, everybody say, unfailing love for us is powerful. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Praise the Lord. So it, it, it is true that if we sin, there are consequences for our sin. It's true. But if you live in the grace of God and the redeeming power of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, we still sometimes sit in this place of shame, don't we? Like we're not enough. But this is the piece. It's not if we're enough. It's if he is enough. Because he's standing in between the place of you and God. And what we tend to do is when we sit in this shame in our life, we hide from God. Think about it. When Adam and Eve sin, they disobey God after, we don't know how long they lived in the garden. Could have been months, could have been years, could have been decades, could have been centuries. We don't know. Nobody knows. But eventually they, they sin. And after all this time being in a personal relationship with God, walking with him through the garden, when they sin against God, what is the first sense that they have? Shame, isn't it? And what do they do? They hide from God. Now, when God comes back to find Adam and Eve, what is he doing? Is he coming to scold them? Is he, is he coming to break the relationship with Adam and Eve and say, I'm done with you, you're dead? No. God finds Adam and Eve to reestablish the relationship with them. That they disobeyed, but because of the love of God, he was there. Now, does that mean there wasn't vast consequences? No. We all have the consequences from Adam and Eve's original sin. But since that moment... God's redeeming plan was in the works. The plan for his unfailing love that you and I get to experience. And when I see Adam in heaven, I'm going to be like, what the heck, bro? No, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Gee whiz. But we struggle with this thing called shame. We hide from God. And again, it makes us like, we're not worthy, but this is what shame does. I was reading on shame this week because I think it's something so prevalent in the church today. It says, shame is defined as the intensely 
painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Why would God want someone like me? Why me? Why Israel? Why David? Because of God's unchanging and unfailing love for you. This is the grace and the love of God that you don't have to walk on on pins and needles of, is God going to be happy with me today? If not, he's going to cast me out and he's going to hate me. I'm going to be rejected. If you live in the, in, in the forgiveness of Jesus, you cannot out the grace and the love of God. Again, that doesn't mean that there will be consequences. There will be consequences for our sin. But every time there's repentance, there is forgiveness and restoration. Continuing on shame, it says this, another quote. Shame is not there is something wrong with us, as we understand this. The intense feeling of shame is the mental mindset that, again, it's not there's something wrong with us, but it is there is something wrong with me. This is what shame does to us. It's not we all have a problem. We've all been affected by sin. It's everybody else is fine. It's me. I'm too sinful. I'm too insert the blank here. The antidote to shame is compassion. And something that I've been working on, and it is a challenge that I have for you, and it has revolutionized my life, is the challenge to treat yourself like you would treat one of your closest friends, mentally in your mind. Because oftentimes what happens when we make mistakes, we're like, Stephen, you idiot, gosh, and we're so mean, we're so terrible to ourselves. But if a friend of ours messes up, we're like, hey, man, it's okay. God's grace is still there. God is still good. He has still redeemed your life. You never, if, unless you're a terrible friend, you never be so mean and crude to a friend. <laughs> and you guys aren't terrible friends. Start treating yourself like you treat your friends. Stop being so hard and awful on yourself. I'm so terrible. I'm not... Because by saying that, you're saying that God's love is not enough for you. How can we even put ourselves in, that, ourselves in that position? And then we're stuck in this place of shame where we break ourselves away from God and we build these walls and we, and we hide from God. And just as God searches for Adam and Eve after they sin, He does the same thing for you. And oftentimes, the reason we think that God is so far away is because our backs are turned to Him. His back is never turned to you. All you have to do is turn around. And in the same way that God made a covenant with David, again, it did not depend on his human obedience because he didn't obey. He failed tremendously. It did not depend on his faithfulness, only on God's unfailing and his unchanging love. And then fast forward hundreds of years, in the line of David, somebody came to redeem the whole story. He came in the humility of a child. That's what we're celebrating this season. He came in the humility of a child. He lived a human life. He was 100% God and 100% man. And oftentimes I feel like we're okay with the 100% God part. We have a really hard time wrapping our minds around the 100% man part. That he was tempted just like you and me, but he never sinned. He lived an earthly life. 
Though he never sinned, he went to the cross. He died on the cross. He took your sins away, but that wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, he defeated death, and he made a covenant with his people. You believe in him, you will have life. The grace of a God is enough for you. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, so now there is, everybody say, no condemnation. Say that. One, two, three, go. No condemnation. For those who belong in Christ Jesus. So that's the one caveat. You belong in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Because, again, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, and again, the fatality rate of life, last time I checked, was 100%. Even Jesus died. Granted, he defeated death. You understand what I'm saying. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. If you are standing before the judgment seat of God without Jesus in between, you are completely finished. It says you will experience eternal separation from God. But when you stand before the judgment seat of God with Jesus standing in the way, you are worthy. Not because of anything that you have done, but by everything Jesus has done. And that is why there is zero, no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. And it pains me to see thousands and thousands of Christians in the United States of America walk around with their heads, and I struggle with shame too, but we walk around with our heads hung low in all of this shame and condemnation. And people look in and see, and they're like, I don't want that. They look miserable. You look miserable. Like, oh, I wasn't enough this week. I failed. I did this. I did that. Isn't God's grace enough for you? Is there consequences for your sins? Yes, but God's grace is enough for you. Because it doesn't depend on your obedience. It's God's covenant for you if you live in Christ Jesus. Again, as Paul would say in Scripture, that doesn't mean you go off and sin and have wild parties. It's not, that's no, no. But we all mess up. But where there is repentance, there is forgiveness. And this is the joy of of the Christmas season, that we get to gather together as a church to come and worship Jesus who came in the line of David. Jesus who really came to redeem David's family story. And that's what I love. You look at the genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament, starting at the life of David or the line of David. You look in that family line, it's pretty messed up. Like, you think you have a messed up family. Raise your hand if you have a messed up family. Raise your hand if your family is sitting next to you. Are they messed up? Keep them way up. Just kidding. We all have messed up families. David was not perfect. Again, he sinned. His sons would sin. There was rebellion. His own son tried to kill him. I think David, honestly, was a terrible father. He had multiple wives. He probably couldn't give his kids enough time. They rebelled against him. There's rape in his family line. And it's just, it's messy. It's brutal. There's murder. His own kids are murdering each other. It's, it's awful. And Jesus came to redeem all of that. And you think of the messiness of your family line and your messed up in-laws and outlaws and the exes from Texas, as my former pastor would say. <laughs> God came to redeem all of that. That's why Jesus came. 
that we don't have to walk around with our heads hung low and I'm so terrible and I did this and I, because God's grace is enough for you. Stop turning your back on God and face Him. Where there is repentance, there is forgiveness. And God made a covenant with you and with me that you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven, period. That you believe in the one and true Jesus, there is no condemnation because we trust, as David says, in his unfailing love. So you and I both sit back and we say things like, as David says, who am I? Who am I, Lord? I am nothing. And it's true. You are. But He is everything. And He is for you. This is the power of the Christmas story. This is the power of the faithfulness and the love of God. His unfailing love for His people, for His children. So I hope you guys come back on Friday evening at 6 o'clock. Join us here. It's one of my favorite nights of the year. We have the candles. We light them and hopefully not burn this entire building down. We sing Silent Night. It's peaceful. It's calm besides the kids. They're kind of noisy sometimes, but that's what it's all about. Jesus cried. He was a baby. But we're here. We worship and we reflect on Jesus who came, again, lived a human life, sacrificed and made a covenant for you and for me that we have hope in eternal life and forgiveness, not depending on us, but on what he has done for us. Would you pray with me? And our team's gonna come. We're gonna continue to worship together and take a time of communion. If you would like communion elements, there's some out the door to the left on the table if you missed them. You can peel off the little plastic on top and there's this little wafer and then there's the juice in the cup. And the reason we take communion every single week is because we want to stay grounded on Jesus, on his death and his resurrection for he is the reason of why we do what we do. So would you pray with me as our team comes? We're going to continue to worship and take communion together. God in heaven, we thank you so much for the covenant that you have made with us through Jesus. We thank you for the covenant you made through David that Jesus fulfilled. That for those who believe in Jesus, there is a life never ending. That will stand before the judgment seat of God with Jesus in between. And we are seen as worthy by nothing that we have done, but by everything that he has done for us. I pray that as we continue to move forward as a church, we'll stay grounded and founded on what really matters. That we don't walk around in shame, but we turn ourselves to you. There's repentance and forgiveness. I pray we start treating ourselves like we would treat a friend. In the gospel, there is no shame. It says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So be with us this Christmas season as we glorify you, as we we worship you. Let us honor you as we take communion together as the church. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.